Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. Uh, my name is Elijah Manley, and I am a junior at Fort Lauderdale High School. I'm 16 years old, and I am running for president because for so long people have been telling me that I was too young to do anything. My age was a barrier from uh, becoming part of the public uh, service. And I believe that you shouldn't tell kids those type of things. You want to motivate them and inspire them. Boy, I'm so tired of coming back to this place. For the record, my name is Elijah Manley. I'm supposed to be in school today, but you know, I'm here to talk about some things that are very important. And it's so sad to hear all of these stories. By the way, I'm a student that attends Fort Lauderdale High School. And I'm here to talk about the corporal punishment that's happening in Broward alternative schools, ESC schools, behavioral schools across Broward County and the state of Florida, to be realistic. Corporal punishment such as seclusion rooms, which I talked to the superintendent about. He plans to get rid of those. Corporal punishment such as PCM. I don't know what it stands for, professional crisis management, whatever. It happens at school like Cypress Run Education Center, Pace School, Wade and Rogers, Lauder Hill, Dave Thomas, Cross Creek, Sunset School, Broward Detention Center, and, and we're just tired of it. The segregation of the ESC students, like that one parent was saying, when are they gonna actually listen to the students and the parents of the community? When are we actually gonna do that? I want Broward County to get rid of the PCM and the corporal punishment that is happening. It's unconstitutional, it's wrong, and it violates the students' uh, rights. request uh, by uh, Mr. Elijah Manley. Uh, Mr. Mr. Manley, come on up. And uh, you'll have uh, three minutes when you're ready. Okay, I'll try to stay on time. <laughs> uh, well, good morning. I want to say um, greetings to everyone for having me here. Uh, I had to kind of like find a way out of school. <laughs> um, I just want to recall that I was here back in March of 2015 on a delegation request, speaking to you guys about lowering the voting age. Um, I just want to uh, ensure you the legality of this action is in fact legal. Two other municipalities have done it before and recently. Um, San Francisco is also considering doing it as well. And I want to make Broward County the third municipality to do this. Um, January 6, 2015, Hyattsville was um, the second one to do that. That was kind of a birthday present for me. May 13, 2013, Tacoma Park did it as well without any problems from the state or the federal government. Um, when I was here back then, the board directed staff to investigate the steps that would be necessary in a county attorney. Um, I just want to know what, what was the direction, what happened, or what was the result of those actions. County school board member returns to the dais for the very first time since a racial slur scandal became public. Ann Murray apologized again today, but some in the community feel that apology is not enough. And that she's not fit to serve. Local 10's Terrell Fournay is live for us at the school board with what Murray had to say. Gloria Calvin and Murray was visibly embarrassed by her own words. All of this happened before she was elected to the Broward County School Board, and today she tells me that she believes she should keep her school board seat. Charged today are defendants Josephus Joe Eglajon, a Broward County commissioner, Joel Williams, Ronald Owens, both businessmen, Sydney Cambridge, an attorney in the Bahamas, Beverly Gallagher, a sitting Broward County school board member, and Fitzroy Salesman, a former city of Miramar commissioner, for acts he took while an active commissioner. During the operation, FBI undercover agents 
purported to represent contractors seeking to obtain construction contracts with local government entities or seeking to hide proceeds derived from purported criminal activity. Before, even before the Democratic primary, but Bernie kind of woke me up a little bit. I was a, I'm a former Democrat. I was a Democrat, too. I was a heavy supporter of Hillary not, just like two years ago. But I learned that the Democratic Party is really nothing but a corporate oligarchy, oligarchy par party that don't stand for the working class people of this country. So I think that we need a real party like the Green Party that's going to stand for the working class people in this country, that's going to put people before profit, that's going to fight for a better economy, that's going to fight for a living condition that we all can live in and not tell lies. Today I am here with Elijah Manley who is currently running for the Broward County School Board. He is an activist with Youth Rights and Black Lives Matter and he is the youngest person to ever run for president. Hi Elijah, how are you? I'm doing good and thank you for having me. First let's talk a little bit about your current campaign. You're running for the Broward County School Board. They've had some issues in the past with funding going missing, caps on, on teacher salaries, prison to pipeline issues. Let's talk a little bit about your platform. There are three main issues I identify as being the most important issues in Broward County. Uh, the first is assuring that each and every one of our students in our schools uh, have access to uh, food and have access to housing um, and health care. Mm -hmm. Those three are the most important because Broward County is being one of the largest metropolitan areas in the country. High school students that are currently attending high school that are homeless. What yes. a mind-blowing thing to me. I know, I know. Right now, 2,752 students inside of Broward County are homeless, are considered homeless as of July 2016. Wow. Actually, 51% of those students are in elementary school grades, uh, K through 5. Oh, my five. God. I know. I oh. thought the same when I saw those statistics. So, Elijah, are, these, are the families homeless? I don't know if it's the entire family or if it's just certain students. I will assume for the student, the 51%, the students in elementary school, it's probably the entire family. Before, uh, many of the high school students, some of them, uh, when they graduate, uh, don't have anywhere to go. Um, they leave mm -hmm. home. They're out on the street. Um, I, I had a friend uh, who I went to middle and high school with who graduated the same year as me, 2017, and didn't go off to college. And she got in a fight with her parents. and she ran away. She had nowhere else to go. She was sick out uh, in her, out on the street, and there were no services available for her. Wow. At all. One of the things you talked about on your website, there's a salary cap for the teachers at in the in the district, but there's no salary cap for the managerial positions. How did that yeah. happen? Right. So this is one of the, the, the most uh, important themes of the campaign, actually. The superintendent, um, who uh, Robert Runcie, who used to be mm -hmm. chief financial officer for Chicago's public schools, um, he's been our superintendent since 2011. When he came, he instituted a, a $77,000 uh, pay cap for teachers inside of our district. Um, just this year, he received a 9% salary increase, and now his salary is $336,000. Um, wow. I know that sounds insane, and it is insane, because for the last three years, he's been receiving a salary increase after salary increase. Um, his salary was $281,000 in 2015. In 2016, his salary was increased to $306,000, if I'm correct. And then mm -hmm. he received another salary increase last year, 2017, 
to $336,000. And that continues to happen while teachers pay audit. Um, is capped, why teachers uh, cannot negotiate higher than 1% and salary increases for themselves, and our superintendent just gives himself a pat on the back. We also here in Los Angeles have low teacher pay, in my opinion. Uh, we require our teachers to have what is the equivalent of a master's. If you look at equivalent salaries for that level of education in the private sector and in other areas, right. you'll see uh, pay rates that are double. And I don't understand why, in my opinion, teachers are such an important part of our the society's fabric. Absolutely. And I think uh, that's a very important issue. And I think there are a few solutions to those issues. The first is we need to have strong unions. In many mm -hmm. states across the country right now, especially here in Florida, um, you see an increase in anti-union bills inside of the state legislatures. In, in Florida, we have a bill, HB 7055, uh, uh, which damages the power of unions and organizing. And that, to me, is right. problematic. We don't have strong unions. Uh, our public sector workers will not be paid uh, for the work that they do, especially in, in fields like education and, and public service. All of us, yeah. especially players. Uh, that, that's, that's just one solution. There are so many other solutions to the issue. I think when we, we talk about public service, we also need to have a cap on how much public, uh, on how much elected officials should be allowed to mm. even salaries as well. Because if you have a superintendent making $336, and there are superintendents in the country right now that are making a lot more than our superintendent, but if we have people making over a quarter of a million dollars a year, while the people who are actually doing the work in the classrooms, educating our students, uh, bringing families together, and, and making our students feel like they're a part of the society, that's a problem. Does he give himself pay increases? Is, is the system set up there where the managerial positions are in charge of what kind of increases come through? So it's actually in Broward County, it's the school board that uh, that decides it's a salary increase. To, School board hires and has the authority to fire the superintendent. He reports to the school board. But in Broward County, it seems to be the other way around. The superintendent okay. seems to get his way in every single thing. Um, if he wants a salary increase, the school board is going to give it to him. If he wants a specific contractor to get bids on construction, uh, he seems to get his way on it. And the school board does not actually do their job in providing oversight over the superintendent like they should. And a lot of that has to do with campaign finance. Because the same contractors and developers that are receiving bids with the school board are the same ones contributing to the campaign of school board candidates that are eventually right. elected. What is your view on charter schools? Absolutely. We actually had a, a bill in the Florida legislature that requires uh, the public school board to provide funding to uh, private schools. Um, regardless if they meet certain standards, uh, the same standards as public schools. That bill was passed by the Florida legislature and signed by the governor. However, our district is suing the state of Florida to prevent that bill from being enacted or implemented. Um, I absolutely have a problem with private schools, uh, for-profit entities, um, competing with public schools um, for funding. I absolutely think that's a disgrace, and I absolutely do not support um, having public funding go to private entities. Now, I'm not going to go as far as saying defund all, pri all private or charter schools because in some cases there are some private and charter schools that are uh, really good uh, schools. Inside of our district we have amazing, um, some amazing private schools such as Pinecrest um, who right. has a high graduation rate who, who actually is educating students uh, really well and I 
absolutely think they should receive public funding, but I don't think it should be required, and I don't think there should be competition between private and public schools. I don't think that's sustainable, and I absolutely think public funding should first, priority should first go to public entities, public schools. The problem is, uh, is the way we fund, I think, public schools, and I'm not sure how you guys do it in Florida, but yeah, very long time in California was is funded through property taxes, and if you live in a dense population and the, the property values are less, less money goes per student. So this idea that we're getting our kids in this country quality of education is not really true. And I think we should be focusing more on how to provide equality in, in education. And I don't think that that happens if we take public funding away from public schools. So now in Florida, you mentioned private school funding. So now this is something that extends beyond getting a charter. Or is there a voucher system where the parents get a voucher that allows them to go? Yes, uh, there is. And I believe there's a slight down between municipalities, school districts in the state over that. And um, I... I don't want to say I don't want to say something like get rid of uh, vouchers because there are some really good private and charter schools. I'm just concerned okay. with the way the way it's being done. You know, I think there's a a profit motive behind it. Absolutely, there is a profit motive behind it, and we have to make sure that we're doing what's in the best interest of of, of the children in our districts. And, and I absolutely agree with you. The way we are funding education, uh, absolutely disgusting. I was talking with someone the other day about uh, having a state bank. Um, and I think if we had that, and we'll be able to fund education, housing, and other programs to make sure our students have an education, and there is no such thing as a lack of funding or underfunded public education. So that's an interesting concept you're bringing up. Run me through what a state, a state bank would look like. So a state bank is pretty much uh, a bank that is chartered by a state. It's, and as a public institution, it will have the power to, to fund um, the entities it, it would like throughout the, throughout its state. That's why our district is spending a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars on um, new technology, on laptops, on and nice touchscreen computers and everything. And that's a problem to me, that we're spending so much money on that. We don't even have enough textbooks for all our kids. And we don't even have, uh, we don't even have, and a lot of our students don't even have housing um, and food or coming to school are hungry or coming to school without, or leaving our campuses without a place to go once they leave. I think we should stop spending too much money on technology and start focusing on what our priorities should be. Our priorities should be making sure all of our students have a prosperous learning environment and making sure that all of our students, when they leave our school campuses, are going home. Uh, to a, a roof over their head with food um, on a table um, and, and, with, and with all of the supplies they need. Uh, it seems to me also that there are plenty of tech companies that would probably be willing to donate equipment. I know um, we had some donations here in Los Angeles from Microsoft. Has anybody on the school board approached any of these tech companies? I, I think some have already. I think some technological uh, uh, tech companies have contributed. Thinking that that would free up some of the funding that they're spending on the laptops to provide free lunches for the kids or more textbooks, updated textbooks. Unfortunately, due to lobbying and campaign finance, I don't think our school board members have thought about that yet. Hmm. Okay. So they're probably getting money to buy the products, some sort of a quid pro quo. Right. Which is why I've pledged not to take any money from any large corporations or special interest groups.
So if we get rid of Common Core, would you get rid of all of it or only parts of it? Um, what sort of thing do you envision taking its place? So I wouldn't repeal the entire... Uh, I wouldn't repeal the entire Common Core state status because some parts of Common Core are amazing and they do great things um, in terms of mm -hmm. preparing our students for college. However, standardized right. testing is one of the largest industries in the country or in, in, in the state. Mm -hmm. That part of Common Core uh, has to go and it has to go quickly. Now, what we replace it with is a bit of a, a discussion that's still going right now. We don't want to repeal something without a replacement. Otherwise, Will look like Mitch McConnell. Um, my example I, I, I used on the website before. <laughs> um, the example I used before was Obamacare. Um, when Republicans originally uh, tried to repeal Obamacare and they had a replacement for it, it was pretty much Obamacare light. It wasn't completely getting rid of Obamacare. It was just taking parts of it out, right. and visual mandate out, and putting their own parts in there. Um, right. That that bill fell. Thank goodness. But uh, that's kind of where we're at with Common Core. We wanted. I, I believe in something called democratized learning or democratized education or democratizing schools. And part of that comes with allowing the community and allowing uh, those districts to decide um, to an extent what those learn what that learning curriculum should be for their students. Because every every community is different and every community is different. And we can't have a national a national educational curriculum like Common Core that and it it doesn't give space for the districts to decide how uh, how their students learn best. Uh, what students need, how students learn in Washington State may be completely different from how students in New York learn or how students right. in Texas or Florida learn and what pace uh, they learn at. And having a nationalized and standardized uh, educational uh, standards like Common Core just doesn't do us any good. Now, mm -hmm. fortunately enough, this is a very popular argument, and fortunately enough, this is a very uh, nonpartisan argument as well. We have people on the right and the left that agrees with us. We have the state's writers that agrees with us, uh, that agree with me on this. We have uh, people on the left, the right, the center that agree that we need, we need to completely revisit how we write our education standards, starting with Common Core. Right. Okay, so you bring an interesting point up, and that is that the good parts of Common Core are the way it sort of teaches math, I think, tries, tries to make it more logical. I think that that's a good idea. What I agree with you on is the standardized testing. This isn't helping anybody. And in fact, if you're only teaching to a test, you're missing out. I don't think you have to have both. I think you can say, like, well, maybe we should reevaluate the way we're teaching math. It's not working. The Finnish folks seem to figure something out here that makes sense. With our um, uh, educational curriculum, it's not teach. It's it's only teaching to uh, college uh, preparation. And what is missing out is not every student is going to uh, want to go to college. Not every student wants material. I don't even like using the term college material, but not every student wants to go to college. We're not right. teaching students to be prepared for life after high school. Uh, or for our I students agree. that are not going to college, that are going into trade school, that are going right into the workforce. We're not teaching to that. Instead, like in high school, I didn't learn how to fill out taxes. I didn't learn how to do anything financial. I only learned Y equals MS plus B. And that's not a sustainable way of, 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 of learning and preparing me for life after high school. I left high school and I did not feel prepared to enter the world. And shortly after graduation, I really learned that I was not prepared to go into the adult world because the education I received uh, was not actual education. It was teaching to the test. So I think through democratizing our schools, we will allow for our students to learn 
best to deciding how them, how they learn best and allow our teachers to teach um, in a way they think is best because the only person who knows, and there's, there are only two people in a classroom who knows uh, how, how they learn best. Number one, the teacher. The teacher knows how each and every student um, in, their, in their classroom learns best. They know their strengths and the weaknesses of each and every student. The other person is the student themselves. You know, so that's, those are the only people who should be making decisions regarding their education. The state should have minimal uh, influence, and the federal government should have absolutely uh, minimal uh, influence over education curriculums. Right. So you're saying we should decentralize our, our uh, education system and bring it on an on-campus basis where the decisions should be made between the teachers, the students, the maybe the principal would be the the higher echelon of, of managerial positioning. Uh, and I don't disagree with that. I or, or even to the school board level, too. Now, there are some pros and cons to that. I do think there should be some form of regulation, at least, like from minimal sure. standards, you know, to make sure we don't have districts like some of the districts in Texas that are getting rid of uh, slavery out of the textbooks. I think we need to be very careful how we do that and make sure we have minimal standards. However, when it comes to how it's implemented right. and how the curriculum is going to be used, I think that should be left up to the district. And the micromanagement and the bullying from the state and the federal government needs to come to a cease. Okay, that's an interesting point you bring up, too, with in regards to the textbooks. We've seen several examples of, of county school boards, not just in, in your area, but also in Texas and Kansas, where the county school boards have tried to step in and sort of erase our history, like you said, you mentioned removing slavery, or they want to remove the idea of evolution and science. What do we do about that situation? Because now we're getting into an area where where the truth is no longer the truth, so to speak. It becomes whatever they decide it is. And that would be an area of concern for me if we entirely deregulate a system. That's a very that's a very interesting question and I, I but I think it's something we really need to think about, and policymakers and uh, decision makers really need to come together and come up with a solution to these issues. Um, mm -hmm. You have to look at this from the perspective of the teachers and the students, because if we're looking at it from the perspective of the policymakers, we're only going to see black and white. We're not going to see the reality of what's happening in the classrooms. I, I say that all the time in that school board meetings in Broward County. Our policymakers, they look at statistics, they look at numbers and papers all day long. That's just black and white. But they're not looking at the reality. They're not visiting the classrooms to see how our students. Now, in regards to how we prevent corruption and how we prevent uh, the, erase, the erasing of history, we really yeah. need parents and students to step up um, because there, there's not so much, uh, there's only so much policymakers can do. Um, True. There's so much the state level can do as well. So we need people to speak up. Parents and students need to be involved in their education and need to um, speak out against these things. Otherwise, uh, policies are going to be passed and decision makers, school board members are going to do things unpopular and mm -hmm. nothing's going to get done about it. Tell me a little bit about the school to prison pipeline. Uh, it seems to me that in Broward County, you guys had a more extreme example of this going on where a large majority of the, the student body was literally being arrested, whether it was minor drug offenses, et cetera, and being kept in, um, detained, and preventing them from going to school. And I'm not sure how this solves any problems. And in fact, I think it worsens problems that are already existing in a community. I know that they've tried to reform that situation. Is 
Has it been reformed? Is it still a problem? Uh, what more needs to be done in that area? So the school board members, uh, I've reached out to school board members in Broward County, and from what I've heard, they're not allowing students to be arrested off of campus anymore. From what I've heard, because I have connections in a lot of high schools and schools across the county, as well as alternative schools, there are still students in our district that are being arrested off of our campuses. Rather than being booked or not, I don't know, but even if it's just being used as a scare tactic against those students, putting them in handcuffs and putting them in the back of a police car, even if you're not taking them to the jail, is still, a, I think, an act of aggression. Um, and, a, a, and very much an act of racial aggression as well towards a lot of our students. Now, in Broward County, the sad part that gets me is we still have what I call prison schools in our county. These are alternative schools for students who either did not behave well enough in a, in a, in a mm -hmm. um, regular learning environment. They were sent to an alternative behavioral modification school like uh, Cross Creek or uh, Whispering Pine Center. Or, mm -hmm. uh, or or Cypress Run Education Center, which I actually visited those schools and I actually uh, attended those schools before. So I know I have a lot of background and knowledge in how those schools work. And those in those schools, there is absolutely no rights for the students. The students come to the school every day. They're searched before they go on campus. Um, I'm referring to my education center. Their property is taken from them. Their cell phone, their money, everything. And they're put into these classrooms. The doors are locked, and if they act up, there are uh, security guards that are legally allowed somehow um, to be aggressive with them, uh, restrain them, use something called PCM. Wow. And they actually have something called seclusion rooms in these schools that they're locking these students in. These seclusion rooms are like jail cells, except they're like plastic. I, I don't know. Have you ever seen in the movies, like in a mental facility where it's just yeah. plastic bombs? They put the they put people are you in a room. They have wait, that wait, in This is actually happening in Florida. Yes, this is happening right now in Broward. Yes. Oh and and the, the, the superintendent told me himself, we're not doing seclusion rooms anymore. However, I've reached out to several students who told me that they're, in fact, still using these seclusion rooms off the books. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't want anyone to know that they're using it. And I know that we were using this before as well because I attended a school in which it was being conducted, where they were using PCM, where they would slam these kids on these mats. They would restrain these kids. You can hear these kids screaming and crying all the way up to high school. And they would put wow. them in seclusion rooms for the whole day. And they were doing this because and, and some of these schools are schools for students with disabilities who are ESC or who, are, who have autism or other, other, other issues. Um, and they were placed in these schools. and. A lot of students that even had autism were restrained, put in seclusion rooms, were abused. And I've talked about this that at the school. Abusive. I've talked about this at the school board so many times, and absolutely nothing gets done about it, and we're lied to. And this is a fundamental violation of human rights and of the rights of the child. This is like being in solitary confinement in prison. I, except we're talking about 15-year-old, 14-year-old kids right now with autism. Exactly. This is insane. I've even heard students tell me horror stories about some schools having um, having students tased. Wow. Are you kidding I couldn't me? Verify the, I couldn't verify the tasing part. However, that, that part is only um, what I've heard from students who, who are telling me about some of the schools in the district, some of the alternative schools. And these kids don't have their cell phones on them, so they can't take video nope. of what's being done. 
Nope. That and some of them are afraid um, to come forward. They can't come forward because they're afraid of re retaliation. Even some of the teachers uh, have came forward before and they were retaliated against or they're afraid to come forward now because of retaliation. I don't, I, they're criminalizing a learning disability more or less. Yep, yep, and, 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 that's, and that's the sad part about it. it. It even gets worse. It gets very, I mean, we've had students before. I, 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 I attended one of these schools before and I saw firsthand um, how wow. this was carried out. And some of these kids would literally run away from the school every day. They'd get off the bus and they'd run, jump the fence and leave for the whole day. And then they'd come back, you know, to get on the bus to go home. Or they'd just run and not come back to the campus. And then the, the, the school district will call the police to go hunt the kid down. And we don't know what happened to those kids. They either went to jail or, or maybe they came back to the school and it was placed in a, even back in 2015 when I was, uh, uh, when I attended one of those schools. And one time I, uh, they, I had an alternative to suspension in high school because I did something. And I was sent to Cypress Run Education Center uh, in, in, um, Broward, in North Broward. And my mom was there. And she had to check me in. It was my first time going there. And they, they were strip searching the girls. Um, they, and my mom saw this. My mom saw this. She saw, you know, them frisk, frisking the girls like their hands in a girl's breast to make sure they didn't have any weapons or something. They were, that's, that was their, they were taking money, coin money, wow. anything solid. You got to keep your paper money, but you couldn't keep your cell phone, keys, none of that. They took everything. And you, you had to walk in a straight line. It was like a prison getting off the bus. And um, my mom saw that. I told my mom, I am not staying here at the school. And she said, no, you're not staying here. And we walked out. How many schools um, are like this in the Broward County area? Uh, officially, there are, there are a few alternative schools. I say there are about five or six I know of off the back of my hand. However, there are a lot of schools with programs like this in it, a lot of uh, what they consider regular education high schools that have programs in it for students with disabilities. And those are called cluster, cluster classrooms, cluster programs. Okay. Cluster programs. And now mainly are, is, I have to ask you this, is this mainly a racial situation in which this is, these are black kids that are being put into these schools? It, it, I would say for, for the, there are a lot, I think there are two aspects of it. The first aspect is uh, are children with disabilities, and, and those are usually children of any kind. Now, some okay. of the schools, some of the alternative schools for students with behavioral issues, most of those schools are, are, are full of black and Hispanic students. Okay. But the cluster programs could be could be uh, students of any race or creed, and those students um, are treated the same way. So it's mainly okay. how you treat students with disabilities and how their and how their discipline matrix works. And I think there is oh, a, a racial disparity in how and who who is getting punished for uh, bad behavior in schools. Wow. That's, that's crazy. I, I don't understand why the school doesn't see that this isn't going to improve the situation or inspire these kids to learn or change. They're just going to make the kids angrier. I know if I was a 15-year-old kid and I was, I'd be one of those kids running away and not going back. I'd be like, right. yeah, go ahead, put my ass in jail. I mean, how, how can they possibly imagine that this is a solution? It, it's the, the insane. I think it's because the school board, they're only seeing it through black and white. They're not seeing, I mean, I know they know that these things are going on because a lot of people have brought these horror stories for Even a parent that came to the school board uh, a couple months ago uh, or about a year ago talked about how her, 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 young, uh, her son with autism was pinched by the teacher um, and called names. 
they didn't do anything about that at all. They just next person and they because they're only seeing it black and white. They think behavioral. Right. The idea, if you're getting the quality of education to your entire population, you have to take into account all have the same social starting places. Not everybody born into this world is going to be as smart as Elijah and Tina. There are going to be kids that are that weren't blessed with the same um, critical reasoning right. skills, and they aren't lesser human beings simply because of that. Right. They're treated in Broward as if they're not even third class. They're not even treated as human beings or as citizens. They're treated as human property in these schools. And I think the, I think it's kind of like it's kind of like the deep state. A lot of people talk about the deep state. I'm just going to use this as an okay. example. It's kind of like that in our gotcha. in our school district. There are there are teachers and there are behavioral specialists and people in the schools who are not going to report all that information to the school board. So that a lot of that information is not going to be in those reports with those statistics that the school board members mm -hmm. are reading. Because not, these schools are going to lie occasionally and not tell the truth. And it's going to take a teacher to whistleblow or a couple students to, to go to the media for this to occur. Yeah, you know, it would be nice to see some of the teachers. It, it needs to be exposed. It's not acceptable. So listen, folks, if you're listening to this, please understand that Elijah is 19 years old. He is way ahead of the curve for his age on so many levels. So if you have, if you're 40 and you're not doing activism in the world, Take a seat. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but you were in ninth grade talking about missing money um, in the Broward County education system, and I was I was pretty shocked to see a, a kid of your age be able to a investigate this, find it out, and then d discuss it the way that you were able to. So tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. It's very interesting because at the time I was one of the only people talking about it. And, you know, I had to skip a day of school to go to the school board meeting and talk about this. So I remember that day right. very, very well. And <laughs> um, I remember I remember the repercussions that came after that. But um, mm -hmm. reading about the reading through the school board's uh, budgets and, um, and, and the contracts, I, I was one of those students that just wanted to know everything that was going on in the school district. So I happened to come across um, an issue. Of, at first, it was about $2.5 million that was not accounted for in our school district, which, is, which was strange. Um, and I brought it up at the school board meeting. And then the next school board meeting, someone else brought it up, and it became a big thing. And the district said they would find out what happened. And at the time, I'm thinking, okay, they're going to find out what happened to this money. Maybe, uh, maybe they didn't you know, account it. Maybe they overspent it. Maybe something happened to it. I don't know. I want to say it was a few weeks later, we came back and it jumped up from two and a half million to about three and a half million dollars. And that was fishy. And I'm thinking, okay, now it's more money that's going, that, that, that just disappeared. Are, are there any other, are there any reporters, news? Come on. Like there's three and a half million dollars just disappeared. What happened to it? Nobody. Silent. I was the only one talking about it. Now I, I went back to school and I, I got in trouble at school because they tried to I guess, you know, I don't know if it was the school district or somebody who tried to, you know, get me in trouble or silence me for, for skipping school to attend a school board meeting, which, which was not the case because I always attend school board meetings. So I went back to the next right. school board meeting. And was it the next or maybe it was a month later? It totaled to $4.1 million unaccounted for. It took them a year to tell me what actually happened. Their, their explanation was that they paid out too much money, um, and they were in debt, which didn't make any sense, because that would be accounted for. Debt would be accounted for. 
Um, right. So they, they lied, and then they kept changing their story to me. They kept telling me, oh, we just overpaid someone. Oh, we found it. Okay, where's the documents? Prove to me where you found it at. Oh, it was this. Oh, it was that. In another department, they kept lying. Well, if you were telling the truth, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have a bunch of different stories. So right. I don't think the money is ever going to be accounted for. I think something really fishy happened. Maybe it was sent to a contractor and overpayments mm. to in a bit, in a construction bit. I don't know what our school district is not transparent. Right. The filings aren't there. You can't trace it back. But it's, it sounds like there's some grifting of some sort going on. I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. really, any Chicago politician who comes and starts. I mean, especially if you have a Chicago politician who came, who's running our school district. I wouldn't be surprised. Well... Yeah, I mean, if he came from Chicago, he was probably under um, Rahm Emanuel's watch. Right, and he was he was he was best friends with uh, Barack Obama. He was there's all these all of these connections with him and Hillary Clinton and with Congress members. I mean, and it's to me, it's, it, it seems like there's a lot of political corruption with our superintendent. And I have actually, I have absolutely told him this to his face that if I'm elected to the school board, I will be reviewing his contract. To me, he's fired because I've talked about these issues and, you know, I've been escorted out of the school board meetings. I've been lied to. I've ignored. And these projects have not been uh, completed. We have an $800 million bond program in Broward County. Taxpayers approved $800 million despite some property taxes to pay for capital projects in our school district. However, those projects have not been done. The bond money has not been spent on has not been spent, I don't think at all, and if it has been spent, it hasn't been spent on what it needs to be spent on. Uh, we have a mold epidemic in our in our district right now. The teachers that are getting patching the walls or they're they're putting they're making sure there's no leakages and they're not doing anything. We had an issue of I was actually on the news and on local ten um, back in December when I, I exposed to school at Gulfstream Academy in Hollywood Beach, Florida, which was a school with portables, which I absolutely uh, hate portables uh, because in South Florida, because of our, our weather conditions and humidity, right. um, a, a portable cannot stand that weather. Um, it was right. extremely moldy, and the classroom was completely disgusting. The district continued to lie and say that there are no students occupying that classroom or no classrooms in there. However, they lied, and we found out there was. So nothing gets wow. done about this issue at all, and. Nothing will get done about this issue at all because our superintendent's priorities is on technology and not on what it needs to be on. You're also a board member for Youth Rights, an organization that is dedicated to encouraging the youth involved in politics. I know one area that you guys are looking at is lowering the voting age to 16. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Some folks might argue that if you're 16, you're really not old enough or mature enough or knowledgeable enough to understand the issues. Well, I have several responses to them. The first would be, uh, when I was 16, I think I should have had the right to vote. Um, I really do. I think I would have been an amazing voter who knew what I was doing. And most young people I've spoken to are are capable of making political decisions themselves. And they did make a political decision. However, they were just not allowed to vote in 2016 um, in, mm-hmm. in those primaries. Um, but they made their political decision heard loud and clear. Um, I will also say that there are a lot of adults who are not educated enough to vote or not mature enough to vote or, or do not know enough about politics. Who are not I mature enough. <laughs> so, I mean, we have, we have, we, we've had two, we had, in 2016, we had two of the most unpopular candidates in the history of yeah. the world. And yeah. when adults tell me that, 
um, people my age or younger are not mature enough to vote. I tell them to think about what future we're facing. I tell them we're facing a future of climate catastrophe. We're facing a future of not being able to afford living at all in a world that they have voted. This is the world they right. voted for. This is the future yeah. they have given us. So when they tell us that we are not mature enough to vote, I tell them to rethink about who's running the world right now because it's definitely not 16 and 17 year olds. I don't disagree. There are plenty of 50-year-olds that don't know the issues, but I would imagine that that's some of the pushback that you receive from people that are props against the idea. I think it's a good idea. What are some of the other areas that you are working in with youth rights? Right. So the, the, the National Youth Rights Association is doing so many uh, different projects right now. Um, one of the important issues I think uh, we should focus on next it's lowering the ages of candidacy. A lot of young people, we have seen a spike in young people's interest in running for public option, uh, for public office. Mm. Um, just like the Kansas Six, the six teenagers in Kansas that, that are running for governor right now. I'm sure you heard of that already. Yeah. Um, amazing news. Um, and right now there are adults who are saying we need to think, <laughs> because right now, Kansas does not have an age of, uh, uh, they do not have a minimum age to run for office, which I think is amazing. So when we see right. young people like that stepping up, having discussions, who, who know the policy more than anyone else, who are actually stepping up to run for office, we should not close that down. We should not try to end the discussion. We need to increase the discussion. We need to welcome them. And I think the next governor of Kansas should be one of those teenagers. And I think when I ran for president of the U.S., knowing that I might not win the election, and knowing that I might not win my primary, I think I brought a lot of those issues with the age of candidacy to the table. Um, I think I was qualified to be president. I might have not been 35, and I might have not had, you know, experience like everyone else. But there are a lot of people who are, are incumbent president and don't have any political experience. You know, a lot of people. So it's like, who do we want? Do we want people... Look, I would rather have you as president than our current president. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really weird because... Those are the same arguments that were used against African Americans and women um, to keep them from Absolutely. voting and running for office. Let's talk a little bit about that. You ran for president um, in the primary in 2016. I think that that makes you the youngest person to ever run in a primary. Obviously, that you couldn't win because of the age ruling. However, um, I sort of think that that was a, an interesting civil disobedience action. You, you, I think you made a point by doing that. Um, so tell us a little bit about that experience. I think it was one of the best, uh, the best experiences I've ever had in my life, and I think it prepared me for politics more than anything else would have uh, the opportunity to do for me. Um, I wasn't thinking about running for, for you know, for a while, uh, for anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was just an activist, a, a young person doing my thing, and um, I happened to be on the bus one day. You know, I heard about Bernie Sanders running. That really, at that time, he was like the first real politician like I ever heard speak, like how I felt right. in that time. You know, it was April 30th, and he, you know, announced his bid for the presidency. And he gave his speech. And I wanted to listen to it. I heard a clip of it. So I went to my local library. I went online, and I wanted to watch his, his uh, campaign rally, his uh, campaign uh, announcement. Uh, and I heard it, mm -hmm. and I could, my bones chilling. I'm like, wow, this is like what I've been waiting to hear. On the other hand, we could hear Hillary Clinton speaking. I'm like, oh, my God, no. <laughs> so I'm on the bus. I feel you. <laughs> so I'm on a, was it the school bus I, I was on. And, and I'm going on my way to school. And while I'm on my way to school, 
I put my headphones in and I'm on Spotify or one of the music apps. And so I'm on the school bus and like this ad pops up and the the ad is about I don't remember which Republican it was joining the race. It was probably mayor around May. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I'm like, what all of these people running for office, all of these, you know, people running for office and I'm like, Wow, the world would be a lot better. And I'm thinking and I'm thinking to myself, the world would be a lot better if there were, you know, young people running for office. And then it hit me there. And I thought to myself, well, what's stopping you from running for president? So I'm on the bus and I'm like Googling the requirement. But then I was, I was so interested. And then it pops up. Right. have to be 35 years of age. Like everything else, I'm reading 14 years of residence, sure. You know, this and that. And I'm like, okay, I, I match all of those. Um, and then it was like 35 years of age, discouraged. And then something else hit me in the head and told me, well, why don't you just ignore it? What would happen if you ignore it? So I contacted uh, a few people I knew, brought the idea. They laughed at me about it. I talked about I talked to a couple of people I know who were in who were in law school or who were lawyers or professors of law, and they told me um, nobody's ever done it before. Go ahead and try it and <laughs> see how far you can get because there are a lot of loopholes in electoral law right now and in and then running for office. So. Uh, Joe Stein had down to Miami. I was right. not thinking of joining the Green Party's primary at that time. I was, you know, independent. And it was May 22nd, 2015, and she was in Miami at uh, an event. Um, and I was there, and I talked to her about it, and she said something which ended up becoming my model later, modified a little bit. And she was saying, there's always more room for younger people to join the political process. Uh, she said something around the lines of, uh, there's always more room for a revolution to begin. My my motto in I mean the revolution begins here, which was which was my motto. I decided a lot of people talked down to me after that. A lot of people were telling me, no, don't you do that? Don't run for president, or you would never get far. People will laugh at you. You shouldn't do it. You would never get elected. You they were like, the first thing that hit me was they were like, you will never win a primary. But I, I did end up winning a few. Uh, a few primaries. Uh, so I said, okay, watch me. And I joined the Socialist Party's primary at first. And um, I did lose the primary to uh, Mimi Sotisek, who did a great job representing the Socialist Party in 2016. And I attended their national convention, and I think I came in around second place or something. And I, mm-hmm. it was him who did really well. And I built connections. And they told me, <laughs> I remember some of the delegates telling me if I ran in 2020, they're, they're, they're vote for me. I'm like, okay, I'll keep that in consideration. And um, then after that, I went back to being um, running as an independent. Um, and then okay. somebody hit me. Somebody said, well, you are a registered Green. Why don't you just run in your own primary? That's a smart idea, but no, I'm not going to run against somebody I like, Joe Stein. Um, well, what's the worst that can happen? You lose. And I'm like, hmm, okay, I'll give it a try. I did run into a few problems in the Green Party's primary with the way it was handled with ageism, institutionalized ageism. But some of those yeah. issues were addressed, and I, I'm still addressing some of those issues right now to make sure that that never happens again. But I ended up getting 41% of the vote in the Florida Green Party's primary. I got some votes in some of the other states' primaries, and I was on a ballot in many of the states' primaries for the Green Party. And I ended up addressing the Green Party's national convention in August of 2016. Yeah, in Texas. 
Yep, <laughs> that was uh, a very good day, and I felt really uh, that that I think was one of the sparks of my uh, political career, addressing the national connection mm-hmm. in Texas, and um, I ended up endorsing Jill Stein, and Jill went and it, she was able to do an amazing job in general representing the Green Party, and I'm glad to have her endorsement for school board now. That was the amazing, that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life, myself and my running mate, Peyton Williams from Texas, did an amazing job uh, representing younger people. We were, he, he was even younger than me. He was 15 or 17 at the time. So after I, after, once I got on the map running for president as a, as a very young person, a lot of other young people started running. Next thing you know, yeah. this kid named these nuts or something. These <laughs> nuts. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I'm, I aspired, uh, I inspired him to run. And then there were other people that started running and had contacted me. A lot of younger people, C.J. Jackson, who's a little, I think, conservative, but I yeah. tried to help him out as much as I could. There were other people that joined. There were so many younger people that when they found that I was running, they said, you know what, I'm going to run. And now we see other younger people running for offices that you don't qualify for, Senate. Now we see the cancer sets and other people that are running. And I stand in solidarity with them so much because this is what I consider the youth revolution and it has begun. I think it has begun. I, you know, and I'm thankful for your generation because I think that you guys are very much clear in what the issues are. So let's talk a little bit about your activism with Black Lives Matter. Uh, we had Jeff Sessions come out and make a statement that... Yeah, I heard of that one. Still... The office of sheriff is a critical part of, of the Anglo-American heritage of law enforcement. We must never erode this historic office. I know this. You know this. I, I think he forgot that he wasn't... I think he forgot that he wasn't at a Klan meeting. <laughs> God, I mean, I'm laughing, but it's it's true. It's like Jesus Christ, pardon my French. So this is the environment we're in. I mean, in in in, in racism in this country isn't necessarily something that's that's entirely 100% on the right. We have racist Democrats. I'm going to say this, and um, it's Absolutely. very disturbing to me. Absolutely. So, um, what? Are there any current uh, Black Lives Matter activities going on in your area that you are involved with? Is there any? Um, big pushes that are uh, yeah. taking up your time? Yes, there. Uh, there's a Black Lives Matter alliance in Broward. I haven't been too involved in the last few months because of my campaign and my traveling, but they are doing they are doing the best of activist work, I think so. Um, They're doing a lot of work around immigrant justice. The Broward Immigrant okay. Justice Coalition is also uh, doing a lot of work. Right now they're going to have a protest um, on Friday uh, because I'm sure you heard about ICE in Miami, yeah. they've been snatching people off of Greyhound buses and sending them to detention centers. So we're going to be protesting on Friday against that. Um, also, there, I believe, uh, coming up really soon, February 15th, I believe, um, the Black Lives Matter Alliance of Broward and a few other groups are going to be sending up, uh, uh, are going to be having a Black Girls, uh, Black Girls Day at the Capitol, and we're going to be having a college tour as well. So I'm asking people to contribute. Um, to them, and, uh, and um, you can either go to the Black Lives Matter Alliance on Facebook or Black Lives Matter Alliance Broward .org or .com uh, and find out. The Alliance okay. is doing so much. They they partner with Fruit Not Bombs and other groups, and they're they're feeding homeless people. They're they're helping people. They're they're fighting for tenants' rights. They're fighting for immigrant right. immigrant justice because it's a intersectional movement. 
Um, and we're understanding that um, it has to be an intersectional movement. It has to be a movement of economics. It has to be a movement of black women. It has to be a movement of immigrant justice. It has to be a movement of fighting for younger people. It has to be a movement of making sure that, uh, are, 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 that trans people are protected and defended. It has to be a movement of making sure that hold the police accountable. And that is exactly what the organization in Broward is doing and what so many other Black Lives Matter groups are doing across the country. Um, and I'm so glad to be supportive and to be an ally in the fight for liberation for Black women as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, I think there's a lot of solidarity with Palestinians. Uh, what do you think the absolutely. reason is for that? Absolutely. I, I, stand, I stand in complete uh, solidarity with uh, Palestinians. I think because what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of things going on right now in, um, in the Gaza Strip that kind of reminds us of what's going yeah. on that, went, that happened in the apartheid state of South Africa. And a lot of it comes back here home, too, to segregation and even worse, sharecropping times in, uh, uh, here in uh, the United States. So a lot of us, we have that level of solidarity with Palestinians because of our own experiences and our own camaraderie on what happened to us. You know, black people are in a continued state of oppression in this country, um, as well as immigrants, as well as uh, Muslim people, women. I mean, there are so many groups right now in this country that are being continuously pushed under the bus. And some of the most oppressed in our society are Palestinians, black women, yeah, Muslims, and immigrants. Um, and, and even undocumented immigrants, who I stand also in solidarity with, and even our, and our dreamers. So. I, I, that we need, we have only one solution, and that one solution we have is a one-state solution, and that state must be a democratic state, one state, and that should unite both the Palestinian and the Israeli people. I, I concur with that. You can't argue for equality unless you're actually interested in equality, and currently Israel's not a democracy, even though they, they claim that they are. They are absolutely an apartheid state. Um, a lot of Zionists are not even... Jewish. A lot of Zionists are, you know, either white males and white, or, or Christians or evangelicals. You're correct. There's a there's a weird religious thing that's going on with evangelicals. They they support the Zionist state because in their mind it brings the second coming of Christ. So it's entirely, even though they hate Jewish people, they want this <laughs> to happen because it brings about the yeah. It's I mean you have to sort of chuckle because it's so perverse in a way. Another thing right. that happens is you have folks like Richard Spencer clearly anti-Semitic racist, yet they're granting some sort of solidarity with Israel because they believe in an ethno-state. You have two fractions here that hate each other because they're racist. They're both racist, and they're agreeing, though, that ethno-states should exist, ergo, that sort of makes them some sort of um, strange bedfellows, so to speak. So there's, there's so many levels of strangeness going on with this, but I was happy to see that the Black Lives Matters activists were reaching out to the Palestinian um, activists because I do think there's a natural uh, solidarity that should exist. The, 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 the mission, the fight, and, and, and a revolution will not be complete until, uh, until Palestine and Gaza is liberated from apartheid. Yeah, I mean, we were all raised in this country to believe that protecting Israel was protecting um, minority rights, if you could imagine, because because we were protecting the idea that, that the victims of the Holocaust could have a safe place to be. So there, it started out in that way, but nobody ever talked about the fact that the, the, the state was created via acts of terrorism and that there was another element here, the displaced people of the, the Palestinians that lost their homes, their land, their lives. 
Nobody wanted to talk about that part. The media didn't discuss it. I think most Americans were completely unaware of the reality or the truth in regards to what had happened. And now, you know, now you have the younger generation who's really clear on this and they want to make it right. The geopolitical argument here for the United States, obviously, is that here you have a non-Muslim country in the middle of the Middle East and it allows them to... Uh, protect empire, so to speak. So it's, it's a bigger picture than than any of the things that we're discussing here, and it's going to be a hard battle to fight, but I do think we need to fight it. If, we're, if we are going to be for equality, we have to be for equality. It's just that simple. Exactly. We, we, absolutely, we absolutely have to be. We, it, it's going to be a battle because of the Israeli lobby, uh, APAC yeah. in, in the United States, and how our government is literally controlled by, by APAC yeah. right now. I'm, I'm not going to be controlled by it. I can I see a lot of people who are standing up. Have these anti-BDS laws, which are, are, are at the end of the day, these are violations of First Amendment rights. Our government doesn't get to tell or, or make those decisions on behalf of their sovereign citizens. And it's sort of stepping into that gray area when they say you can't have a contract or I can't give you your grant funds unless you sign this paper that says you don't support BDS. It's, it's certainly on the slippery slope, in my opinion. And I can't imagine why so many politicians aren't seeing that for what it is at some point. I was happy to see Senator Feinstein put her foot down and said, no, she wouldn't be a part of that. So, you know, surprised. the winds have changed. Yeah, I was surprised too, but she did. You know, and uh, Bernie's been very vocal on on this particular subject, which I'm thankful for. Um, so I think that I think the pressure is working. The tide is changing. You know, I'm a, I give money to a group called Jewish Voice for Peace, and we've now been Amazing. banned from entering. We've now been banned from entering Israel, so I um, cannot go to Israel. <laughs> Which is like that's just. So I'm surprised funny, I'm not yet. I'm, I'm surprised I'm not yet. I mean, I've been you know cyber attacked by probably IDF and so many other groups. I'm surprised I'm not on cannery mission yet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I laugh, but you're not wrong. It's, you know, it's kind of crazy that way. I, I, I particularly um, even have a, 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 a pretty nasty personal battle going on with Debbie Washington Schultz. It's probably because of this issue. Yeah, Debbie is very hard right on this issue. She doesn't see it that way, of course, but she most certainly is very hard right. The good news is Israeli police uh, has recommended that Netanyahu be charged with bribery and fraud and corruption. So that was the good news today. Hopefully... You know, yeah, Yahoo is very corrupt. Um, Yair, his son, it thinks Richard Spencer's is a okay, and he's now reinstantiated Pepe the Frog as this pro-Israel thing. I can't even understand this one. I'm like, you do realize Spencer hates you because you're Jewish, yeah, you're right. I just, I don't know. This whole thing's crazy to me. Yeah. Um, let's talk briefly about. Um, I think that economic issues and race issues are are very much integrated. They're intimately related. I don't, you know, I think there's a reason that MLK made poverty as part of his platform um, before Absolutely. he was assassinated. There's a neoliberal practice in which they try to separate these two things and they try to claim that anybody that wants to talk about economic justice is not is ignoring race issues, which I think is ridiculous because the groups that are most affected by income inequality aren't white males. Right. So I don't understand this this way of thinking. We won't allow people like Joy Reid who gets paid $30,000 a day to define what issues should right. be talked about. You know, we have, a, we have a big problem. We need to start addressing economic issues. We need to start bringing 
people together. You know, we can bring a lot of people together in this country and have a political, economic, and, and, and an actual revolution in this country to change it. And all we need to do, like I hear Democrats all the time, they're attacking people in Alabama, calling them, they're racist, they're racist, some of them are, I'm not going to say they're racist, and they're this and that, using identity politics to, you know, yeah. and identity politics can be good to us, but when it's compared against economics, it's not. Um, it should not be a competition. So I hate when Democrats do that. They did that during that race between Doc Jones and Roy Moore, calling uh, a lot of the people that in there, you know, they're all racist and they're all terrible people. We need to really be careful when we when we look at these things. A lot of those people are poor people who are impacted heavily by capitalism and what we need to do is stand in solidarity with those people. I know Bernie Sanders does a good job talking to people in some of these states, uh, which we've seen. We need to talk to that labor part of people. We need a labor and actual labor movement in this country. Um, Hillary lost the rest of those states for a reason. She was talking about yeah. identity politics. She was not talking enough about economics. Trump was there, although he was really kind of, you know, racist and everything. He was in those states and he was talking about TPP and bringing jobs back. There's a big difference there. And anybody can see the big difference. He was talking about, even though he was lying, he was talking about economic issues. And she was talking about, right. you know, grabbing by the pussy, which was not, not an important issue. What was an important, I'm sorry for saying that. But he, no, he but it's true. I laughed right on about with Clinton is, is she was using identity politics as a screen. I mean, she even used the term firewall. I don't understand how people don't see how offensive that is. I wouldn't want to be anybody's but, firewall. And in the meantime, where has she done anything to support policies that will change the systemic racism that exists in this country? It's all lip service. I mean, she started a mass incarceration, her and her husband. So she should yeah. take responsibility for that because that's part of the reason why she lost. And the reason why they keep yeah. using identity politics is because it scares the shit out of them for people to come together on economic terms to start addressing poverty, to start addressing the issues capitalism has caused. It scares them for that. They don't want to, they want to keep people divided and conquered. Now, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about race. We absolutely should talk about race. But why can't we talk mm -hmm. about racism and sexism and classism and economics together? Because those things intersect. Those things are all um, in the same category. And class and race go together. There is no racism without classism. There is no classism yeah. without racism. There is no, none of that. All of it is the same thing. And it's being used because certain groups, certain races and genders are being used to enforce capitalism. And, and they use it to turn everybody against that one group so that nobody pays attention to the guy at the top who's actually running the system and exploiting the workers. You are 100% correct, I think. Uh, that's pretty much how I see it as well. And I think, I think it does scare them. I think the idea of a, of a poor white working class and a poor black working class coming together and fighting the system that is scary because there's a lot there's a lot more of those folks than there are of the one percenters and all it's going to take is for that to happen because once everybody's clear on this and they decide to fight the plutonomy it's all over for the plutonomy you we as as a group have far more votes there's more of us than the one percent does and it's high time that we all realize that so our voice our vote voices and our votes had value folks telling us that it's something other than what it is. And I'm glad you brought up Joy Reid because she does this all day long and it's just like, Joy, stop. Uh, during Obama's race, she came out and said Bernie Sanders was the clarion voice of the Democratic Party. And she was very critical of Hillary Clinton. 
as she should have been um, for the way that she campaigned against Obama because some of that stuff was racist. And, and Joy was able to talk about those things. But now here we are all these years later, and she seems to have done a 180. And all she wants to do is uplift Clinton. And I don't understand this. Absolutely. I, I think it was, it was the money. You know, it was easy for someone to, like, shoot her a couple thousand dollars more in her payroll and got to, got, to, got to keep her shut up for a while and attacking the wrong people. And it's so yeah. easy for people to sell out nowadays. Where can, so if somebody wants to donate to your campaign, uh, where can they go? Yeah, because we actually need a lot of help with that right now. But So they can visit com and visit the Contribute page and click Contribute Now. And it will take them to CrowdPack. The CrowdPack page is where I encourage everyone to contribute to. You can access that okay. through my website or you can go directly to the link, um, uh, CrowdPack. Excellent. And what is your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at I, Elijah Malley. And did you have any parting words for us? Please keep up the fight and not allow them to divide us on petty things that could be discussed through a civil manner. And they want to control us and our destiny. But when we stop allowing corporations and rich people to determine our destiny, we can do anything we want to do. So I ask people to keep up the fight on immigrant justice, keep up the fight um, on education, on healthcare, and fighting for our dreamers. Um, we will not give up on that fight, and we will not allow 800,000 children to be sent out of this country. Additionally, stand in solidarity with all 11 or 12 million undocumented people who have come to this country for not just a better life, but to escape the bombs that we drop in other countries. And finally, I want everyone to remember that there is absolutely no liberation to no one until there is liberation of the people of Palestine and of Gaza. Let's not attack Iran. Let's not allow this false flag to, to bring us into war or fool us or lie us into war again with another country, which has not done anything, absolutely anything to us.